Well, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, my name is uh, Jeffrey Golden. I'm a visiting professor in the law department here at the LSE, and it's my distinct pleasure to welcome you to today's public lecture, uh, which is entitled A Conversation with Sandra Day O'Connor, former Associate Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, why am I not surprised that there are so many of you here? I think the answer is we're in for a real treat. But before introducing our featured guest today, I'd like to recognize um, the Executive Director of the International Bar Association, my good friend, Mark Ellis. Mark, if you could just stand. stand. Mark is also a close friend of our speaker and was instrumental in bringing this uh, opportunity to the LSE. I'd also like to extend a warm welcome. I see you scattered about to my colleagues and fellow members from the Society of the American and English Lawyers. We're very grateful for SEAL support for this event as well. But I'd especially like to say greetings to the LSE students who have taken time away from their examinations and their exam preparations um, because you didn't want to miss this occasion. Thank you for being brave. But as soon as this session is over, it's back to the books. <laughs> There's a good chance we may hear something today that will help with an answer on one of those exam questions. Now, you know, 40 years ago, like many of you today, I was an LSE student. And I sat and I listened to great leaders and was inspired by them. The, the LSE changed my life as it will change many of your lives. The LSE changed my life, but it didn't change my accent. And perhaps that's a good thing because in my best American accent, I now have the privilege of introducing to you a great American, a great American and a great jurist, a leader, communicator, and a great role model. Um, Sandra Day O'Connor grew, grew up in the American Southwest. On the family ranch, the Lazy Bee, it was no country for sissies. Um, she and her brother wrote in a warm and personal account of the Lazy Bee that they published a few years ago. She could mend a fence, ride a horse, shoot a rifle, and drive a tractor by the time that she was eight years old. <laughs> by the time that she was 16, she was more than holding her own with the competition at uh, Stanford University, and then it was Stanford Law School, the Stanford Law Review. But although she graduated near the top of her class, she told me dinner last evening that uh, when she did the rounds of the big law firms, only one would make her an offer, and that was to be a legal secretary. Undeterred, she returned to Arizona, hung out a shingle, and with a friend, started a two-lawyer practice in a shopping center. And then there follows an amazing story, a story of public service, of time spent as a state legislator and a state court judge before that momentous occasion when in 1981, President Ronald Reagan nominated her to be the first female member of the Supreme Court of the United States, a position that Justice O'Connor held for a quarter of a century before she retired in 2006. Now, from an early age, Justice O'Connor has challenged traditional gender roles. As the first woman justice on the U.S. Supreme Court, her place in the history books is, is guaranteed. But her legacy and her influence go beyond that. 
In her later years on the court, Justice O'Connor was arguably the most, its most po powerful member, and some would say the most powerful woman in America. In 2009, for that and many other reasons, Justice O'Connor was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest honor of the United States by President Barack Obama. However, rather than hear me go on with more detail of her remarkable story, uh, we'll let Justice O'Connor draw on that and share some of her experience with you. She's kindly offered to make remarks of her own first, but then she's very keen to hear your questions and to try to answer them as well. So please join me in extending a very warm welcome uh, to Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, and let's show our appreciation for her taking time from her day to spend with us here at the LLC. Thank you very much. by just introducing me for what I am today, an unemployed cowgirl. <laughs> but I'm so glad to be here. I have three sons, and the youngest one attended this school, London School of Economics, and he's enjoyed it so much. And I remember he got some kind of an unpaid job with a member of parliament in the Labor Party, which let him spend a bunch of time over in that division of government, and he really had a great experience at this school, and I'm so glad to have a chance to be here briefly. And uh, I am amazed that there is anybody in the audience here today, because it's not only exam time, it's lunch time. <laughs> so you're pretty brave to be here, and thank you for coming. Now, the legal systems in um, Great Britain and the United States, as you know, have a common heritage, uh, founded on the common law traditions developed right here in the UK. And our binding connection, as you know, ended in 1789 when our Constitution was ratified. But we never abandoned our reliance on the British common law. And it remains the basis of our legal system in the U.S. And you will see, even today, uh, occasions when members of the U.S. Supreme Court have to resolve some issue and they'll have to do some research and try to determine what the result would be under the British common law on a question. Now, the genius of the common law has been its ability to uh, develop over time on a case-by-case -case basis, issue by issue. And um, we have to resolve challenges posed by new situations. And the common law courts have contributed enormously, I think, to the growth and development of law and freedom and justice in our two countries. And I think, uh, in a sense, across the world because the principles developed here and in the United States have resonated around the world. And in the United States, amazingly enough, it's really, uh, the last 50 years 
of our history. Uh, U.S. Supreme Court decisions on individual rights have uh, recognized many of the freedoms that we all assume are our birthright in the U.S. today. And among those developments are uh, the right of free speech and the right to advocate for change and the right to worship as we please and the privilege of political participation. It was not until the 1960s that the U.S. Supreme Court acknowledged the constitutional right of the media to criticize public officials. And it was in that era that the U.S. Supreme Court first guaranteed all people charged with serious crimes a constitutional right to the assistance of counsel if they couldn't afford it themselves. And uh, it was within that 50 years that the Supreme Court applied protection against self-incrimination to state criminal defendants. And we recognized the right to confront and cross-examine witnesses in state court trials. We required the states to provide speedy trials to defendants in criminal cases and jury trials to those charged with serious crimes. And the court within that 50-year period extended the ban on double jeopardy to state court proceedings. And in the 1960s and 70s, the U.S. Supreme Court struggled with issues of personal freedom and privacy. For instance, in Roe against Wade, the Supreme Court addressed in a question that has very divided American public opinion, and it still is today. The court's resolution certainly didn't uh, settle the issue for all time, and that was whether and to what extent does the U.S. Constitution protect a woman's decision to have an abortion. And in the case of Roe versus Wade, uh, the court tried to articulate certain principles in that area, things that are still, I think, debated in our country. And under the, within that same time period, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, dealt with a number of laws and regulations that discriminated on the basis of gender. I mean, it was just a few years before I came to the court that the court was still deciding things like whether uh, juries had to include women and just things that you would have thought would have been decided many years before that. And many issues concerning uh, employment discrimination and cases involving sexual harassment at the workplace. And the centerpiece of many of these decisions that I'm talking about really began with a case called Brown versus Board of Education, where the Supreme Court held <laughs> that it was a violation of the Constitution to segregate schools or any public facility on the basis of race. 
And until that decision, as you know, many schools throughout the United States and certainly in the South were uh, racially segregated. I went, I grew up on a remote ranch and my parents sent me off to live with grandparents in El Paso, Texas. And as a little girl, I remember that schools in El Paso were racially segregated and so was public transportation and so were the movies. On Saturday afternoon, my friends and I would go downtown on the bus or streetcar to go to a Saturday afternoon movie that the movie theater had downtown for young people. And that theater was segregated by race in those days. So, you know, it isn't that long ago that we saw conditions that have certainly changed in today's world. And finally, after the case of Brown versus Board of Education dealing with school segregation, the court, the Supreme Court, and the Congress of the United States finally got busy trying to give meaning to the framers of the Constitution's promise of equality. But um, it certainly occurred in a very diverse nation that I think the framers of our Constitution certainly couldn't have imagined would have developed. And once judicial review became the tool that we used to gain reform, the acknowledgement by the Supreme Court of a particular legal right would lead other potential litigants to put forward their claims in a different context and to put them before the courts. And the requirement to accord equal treatment without regard to race or gender has led to lots of second and third generation problems to define the proper remedies for past discrimination and uh, to affirmative action plans in the workplace and to all kinds of things. I think there was a case this very term from Walmart alleging um, gender-based discrimination and it leads to questions about class action suits and how they can develop and unfold and not every nation allows class actions. I'm not even sure how far Great Britain goes in allowing class action suits. I think not as far as the United States does, but these are all current issues actually. And we now have a situation following Brown versus Board of Edu Education where living patterns in different communities have resulted in de facto segregation all over again. Uh, people, uh, for instance, have trouble finding affordable housing and tend to be aggregated in certain areas and you will go to the schools in those areas and look around and it looks like a segregated school all over again. And so the question becomes, does the state have some obligation to go in and try to 
make students go to different schools to give a, a better um, racial breakdown. But the issues don't stop. And there is a lot of work left to be done in the United States. And lots of questions are still unanswered about the ultimate sweep of some of these individual rights <coughs> decisions. Now this very year, there was a case in the US Supreme Court called Snyder versus Phelps. And it dealt with the First Amendment's right of free speech and the question of whether it protected the speech, outrageous, horrible speech, of members of a church that protest at funerals of US soldiers who've been killed. And the members of the church show up at the funerals and make outrageous statements and they have signs and just do things that would shock you. Signs that say, thank God for dead soldiers, things like that. Now, is there a protected right of free speech for that sort of thing? And that's what the case involved. And the church wanted to protest even after the horrible shooting that occurred in my home state of Arizona in Tucson recently, where a very important federal judge was killed and a woman member of Congress was shot in the head. Others were killed as well. It was a ghastly event. And um, members of that same church wanted to come and have signs and make statements on that occasion too. But the Supreme Court in this recent case held that the First Amendment protects even that awful kind of speech. Now, have they gone too far? I don't know, but I think it's interesting that we have current issues that are so relevant. Now, I don't know how the courts in Great Britain would handle claims of that kind. It isn't clear to me. It might be something you'd enjoy talking about in your classes. How far does the right of free speech as recognized in this country go? Um, your libel laws in this country are broader than those in the United States. But I understand there are proposals to amend some of those in the parliament currently. Now, in 2010, the Congress in the United States passed and President Obama signed something called the Speech Act, which prevents US courts from recognizing or enforcing <coughs> foreign judgments for defamation, unless those judgments conform to US understandings about free speech. That's kind of a new development, and I'm not sure how that's going to play out. And although the United States has objected to uh, British courts holdings in some libel actions against US citizens, other countries are often not pleased about the scope of jurisdiction that US courts assert over their citizens and their corporations. 
So we have a lot to follow and watch around the world. Another area of free speech law that the Supreme Court in the United States is still developing and an area in which um, Great Britain and the U.S. have different approaches concerns the financing of election campaigns. Now, I think in Great Britain, the laws about financing parliamentary elections have focused largely on limiting expenditures by candidates and political parties, but permitting unlimited contributions by different donors. And in the United States, in a series of decisions about campaign financing, since the mid-1970s, the U.S. Supreme Court has done exactly the opposite from Great Britain. The court has held expenditure limits to be unconstitutional, but has upheld contribution limits. So we're just, we're on totally different patterns there, and you might like to explore that in any of your classes that deal with these fundamental freedoms. And as you may have seen in the news, in January 2010, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned limits on corporate spending in political campaigns. That case is commonly referred to as the Citizens United case. And in Citizens United, um, the court overturned a, an opinion of the U.S. Supreme Court that was handed down in just 2003, and I happened to have written part of it. <laughs> so I paid attention to that. Um, I wrote in a case called McConnell versus the FEC, and the, in 2010, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned that. But I think it has very profound effects because what it said is there can be no limits on corporate expenditures for campaigns. And that's pretty dangerous because that's where a lot of money comes from. And I think if you wanted to get a handle on it, you'd work the other way around. But so much for that. I explained my views in the earlier opinion, so you can go read it if you're interested. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of the campaign spending in the United States uh, goes toward political ads. Uh, primarily on television. I mean, they're very expensive and they're quite effective and so candidates want to put a lot of money in ads on the television. And um, I think in Great Britain, um, Great Britain says it's fine to put a ban on paid political broadcasting. Isn't that amazing? I mean, this is where our nations starting from the same premise, have just gone in completely opposite directions, which I think is worth a little study and worth a little comment. Now, what our cases show is that even for common law legal systems, which we both have, that have been established and functioning pretty well for a very long time, there are still uh, some conflicts on basic rights and there's still a lot of unresolved questions, believe it or not. And there are differences in approach taken in our two nations.
um, and certainly differences in our nations from other nations around the world that have similar questions to address and similar problems. Now, I think whether we're in this country or in the U.S., whether we're young or whether we're old or whether we're rich or poor or educated or illiterate, we have some common traits that we do agree on. And some of them are we value liberty. We want freedom to do and say what we think and believe. And we have, I think, a pretty universal desire for equal treatment, whether because of our uh, racial origins, our appearance, or our gender, we, we value equal treatment. And we want some defense mechanisms for overreaching by the state, by the government. We want certain um, independence individually. And I'm pretty optimistic in the long run about the world that our children and grandchildren will find. And I think various countries around the world have made enormous strides, real improvement, in the effort to build a fair and an equitable social order that gives all young people, as well as adults, some political freedom, some economic opportunity, and some meaningful legal protection. And a majority of nations in the world today now have democratically elected leaders. And I don't know about you, but when I read about what's happening in the Middle East, what happened in Egypt, and what's going on today in that region of the world, um, I think it's basically encouraging because that looked like a pretty difficult situation. And I think it's been promoted in large measure by the instant communications that are available today over cell phones and other means of communication with each other. And it's just fascinating to see what's happening. And uh, you can't help but look back at the emergence of new countries uh, at the end of the Cold War and what happened then. And it was so much more difficult to communicate and the development was slower. It developed, but it was harder. And today we're seeing instantaneous developments and actions and we're seeing common ground emerge that we wouldn't have seen so quickly and didn't see after World War II. So I think people in all these areas seem to me anyway to be committed to freedom of speech and expression, freedom of worship and association, and freedom from arbitrary arrest and detention, freedom from government discrimination, and a right to participate some way in the political process, no matter what your background or economic status is. Back in the 1700s, when the framers of the U.S. Constitution finished their work in 
Philadelphia. It was a hot summer and they were pretty tired. They'd been at it for a while. And a woman went up to Benjamin Franklin when he was walking around Philadelphia and said, now, sir, what sort of government did you design? And he said, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. And I think that's the challenge today. You know, we have democratic governments in many parts of the world, and preserving a good system is not easy because you have corruption, you have racial and ethnic prejudice, you have disparity in legal representation, you have administrative delays, and even the best efforts at reform are not always successful. So I think justice at times in all of our countries seems a little bit elusive. And equal justice under law, which is what we said we produced in the United States, uh, still remains, I think, for some people um, somewhat of an unfulfilled promise. And since my retirement six years ago from the Supreme Court, I have focused on two issues that I think are necessary to achieve um, the promise of a fair government in the United States. And it's possible that there are similar concerns in the UK. One is judicial independence. I think it's terribly important that there be one safe place where you can get fundamental issues resolved fairly and in accordance with our basic beliefs in the United States. I think that place is in the courtroom. And I think that may well be true in Great Britain as well. So we have to keep that place safe and functional. And the other is the need to educate every generation of young people about our fundamentals of government, how it works. We're falling down on the job in the United States on that. Now, let me say a word first about judicial independence. You have to have judicial independence to maintain what we call the rule of law, that uh, lawyers around the world and the international bar that Mark Ellis spearheads, that's our concern, is to promote the rule of law. And threats to judicial independence defeat efforts to apply the rule of law. And in the United States, there have been increasing criticism of judges and uh, efforts to impeach judges in the United States, for instance, in Iowa, because they, the state Supreme Court there made a decision that a lot of people didn't like, and they were up for retention election, and three of them, the three who were up, were defeated. I mean, this is a pretty strong movement in the U.S. And um, I think judicial independence is a particular challenge in some of the states of the United States today where judges are still elected by popular election. That's not a good way to pick judges. You don't have that in Great Britain, so that's good. That's fine. But we still have it in the U.S. in 
20 or more states, and I don't think that's the best way to go. I have worked very hard in my retirement to speak out about that in states that are considering the possibility of a change, and I hope we can see other states move toward a merit selection system. And if you have judicial elections, which no other nation in the world is promoting, uh, judicial candidates have to raise money for ads in the election. And some of the biggest contributors in those campaigns end up being people who have litigation before that very court. Uh, in 2009, the U.S. Supreme Court considered a case where it came from West Virginia, which has popular election of its judges. And there was a mining company there that had a $50 million judgment against it. And in West Virginia, there's no intermediate appellate court. The losing mining company was appealing the judgment to the state Supreme Court, and there was an election up for the Supreme Court justice seat. And the head of the mining company uh, forked over about $50 million for the campaign for the person it was promoting. Well, um, surprise, surprise, that was the candidate who won the election. <laughs> he had a lot of ads, and he won the election. And um, that very candidate provided the deciding vote in a three to two decision to overturn the $50 million judgment. So the case ended up in the US Supreme Court and um, the verdict um, ultimately was overturned by the Supreme Court as a violation of due process under what had happened, and it was a divided opinion, I have to say, but I thought the court did the right thing, and I thought it was a pretty shocking case, to tell you the truth. Now, um, that case is going to be heard by uh, a new panel that doesn't include the one getting $50 million. <laughs> now, <laughs> I think that the election of judges, such as we have in a number of states in the United States, poses a threat to judicial independence and the confidence of the citizens in a fair and impartial court because the advertising dollars spent in those elections are really taking a toll. And I think judges can be influenced by that kind of support about a fourth of the judges themselves agree and say, yes, uh, that kind of campaign donation could affect our decisions. So I think we have to have the one safe place where being right is more important than being popular and where fairness uh, trumps strength. And that place in the United States and I think in Great Britain is in the courtroom. So we have to keep political influences out in those situations. And I think judges have to be assured that they're not going to be subject to retaliation <coughs> at the voting booth or otherwise for judicial actions. 
And that's where civics education comes in, and that's the other concern that I have since my retirement. About half of the states in the United States no longer require the teaching of civics, how government works, uh, for students in high school or middle school. Now, I think that's a terrible mistake. The only reason we got public schools in the United States in the first place was with the argument that we need to teach every generation about how government works. You don't inherit it through the gene pool. You have to learn it. And every generation has to learn it, and they have to understand it. So we really need to teach it in the public schools. And I don't know what's happening in Great Britain, but we're falling down on the job in the United States. And so I've helped by launching a website called iCivics.org, and it's, about, uh, it's all about teaching young people how our three branches of government work, what each of them is responsible for doing, and what the citizen needs to do to be involved. And we do it by providing games that the young people play if they go to the website. And the games teach them. And it's a very engaging way to teach. It's very effective. And I think we're making some strides in the United States. I have chair people uh, today in all 50 states. And you can look it up on your computer, www.icivics.org. And you're too old for it, but you'll be interested to see how we do it. Because it is engaging and fun. And I have high hopes that we can teach a number of generations of young people about how government works in the United States. And we've got to be concerned about how our young people are educated so they will become uh, informed and productive as citizens to protect judicial independence, to protect our form of government, and to be engaged citizens. And um, it isn't just a local issue or a national issue. I think globalization really has made our world smaller in a very real sense. And we're increasingly interdependent with people in other countries. And when the Bill of Rights came into being in the US to get our Constitution adopted. Thomas Jefferson said the United States was kindly separated by much of the world by nature in a wide ocean. But those barriers are breached today. The Earth has grown smaller. We're increasingly linked together. And as more and more people communicate instantaneously, as we do and as we've been seeing in the Middle East, uh, the stroke of a computer key, I think uh, globalization is an inescapable, <laughs> excuse me, <coughs> it's an inescapable truth of our time, and it's a huge challenge to live together in a world that has such porous borders and with some segments of the world where there's some real hatred and dislike. And we have to meet that challenge with legal systems that accommodate our need to have some form of internal authority, but also the gains from a closer union. 
that result from engagement in the global community. And every nation has an important role to play in that. So I'm just delighted to be here with you today, and I think we're going to have time for some questions from you. You can ask. I don't know if I'll answer, but we'll find <laughs> out. And are you going to conduct that? Is that what you're going to oh, do? Please join me can here. Can I come sit yes, at the come table on. Sit You've got it now, iPhone, iPad, iPod, iCivics. Yeah. Remember nothing else. Right. Right. Well, thanks right. for that. Thanks yeah. for, for yeah. all that ground covered. Um, thanks for reminding us of the different answers. Questions may be the same, but the different answers. When I came as a student to the LSE, the Times here in London, the London Times, used to advertise itself with a poster, just blank black background, single line of text, and I remember one of those posters, because it's stuck in my mind. Yeah. It said, great minds think unlike. Yeah, that's and true. We've got some great minds and great minds in the, in the development stage here in the audience, and we have some hands, and we have some roving mics. So let's uh, take a student, uh, one of the student questions here, and we'll work our way around, around the room. There's a gentleman right here in a, in a white jacket. Um, thank you very much for an extremely interesting uh, talk. Um, I, I hate to bring up something so controversial right at the beginning, but I wanted to ask um, what your opinion was now with, uh, I think, nearly 12 years, 11 years of hindsight, and whether you regret your siding with the majority on Bush v. Gore. No, I don't. <laughs> I certainly don't. I think the court did the best it could. That was a federal election and federal laws controlled. It boiled down to how Florida counted its votes. But Florida, like every state, was obliged to follow federal law in arranging for vote counting. And it boiled down to four counties in Florida. And Florida was using new voting machines that people hadn't used before, and they didn't know how they were. And they ended up having ballots, punch card things, and some of them, the thing didn't punch all the way through and that had hanging chads, you remember hanging chads? Okay. And Florida did not give any uniform instruction to the volunteers that controlled how you counted the votes in those counties. They used a bunch of volunteers, hundreds of them, and they didn't tell them how to deal with it. And we said they had to, that it had to be a uniform rule. Come on, you've got to apply the same standards when you count them. And they didn't do that. And so we said Florida was wrong. We didn't accept that method. We said you had to do it uniformly. And would I decide that again? I sure would. And not only that, you might as well know. <laughs> <laughs> there were three recounts of all those votes. They were all saved. Every ballot was saved, hanging chads and all. And the press supervised three recounts. In not one of them did the result change. So am I worried? No. <laughs> we're going to take one more from this side, and we're going to work our way across. Please keep the questions short, because we want to get as many of them as we can. You can see they're not shy. Um, well, let's, let's take uh, one on the, the, the far side there, and then we'll come back to the center. 
Thank you very much. <clears throat> My name is Santiago Pardo. I'm a student here at LSE. I am from Bogota, Colombia. I served in the Constitutional Court back in Colombia, so I am very excited to hear your experience in the court. I have two brief questions. The first one is, you mentioned you traced a comparative study between the UK and the US in certain situations. The Constitutional Court in Colombia have used a lot of the Supreme Court sentences, Abrams, v, uh, Abrams versus the United States, Plessy versus Ferguson, Brown versus Board of Education, as an argument to a very, very strong decisions the Constitutional Court in Colombia has taken. However, in the US, that's a very, very strong debate between the justices in the Supreme Court. So I would like to hear your thoughts on using constitution, uh, sentences from other, uh, other courts in the US Supreme decisions. And then my second brief question is, could you explain me more about the merit-based election you are for judges you are trying to um, work in your retirement? Thank you. Okay, now, you, how do you interpret the first question? Foreign, foreign precedent. The relevance of foreign precedent. The relevance and, and, and of constitutional. precedent from, for instance, the court in Colombia on a similar question. Okay. In interpreting the U.S. Constitution, if it's a question of U.S. constitutional law interpreting our, our Constitution, the court would be very reluctant to rely on precedent from any other country, Great Britain or Colombia or whatever it is. As good as your court may be, we would think that wasn't particularly relevant to deciding some issue of the meaning of our Constitution written in the U.S. by people in the 1700s. So I'm sure you can understand that. Now, if it were a question of the meaning of an international treaty signed by Colombia and by the United States as well, what the courts in Colombia, how they interpret that treaty, would be relevant. And the courts in the U.S. would want to know what Colombia courts said about the treaty, because we're both signatories to it, see? But it wouldn't be uh, relevant, I think, about what a Colombia court would say about the meaning of our Constitution. So I think that's the difference. Not that we don't respect the Colombia court, we do. And if we're both members of a treaty, what you say would be highly relevant to what we should say about it. Do you see what I mean? Okay. And the second question, the second question about the um, merit versus elections for judges and how, how oh, best to achieve Oh, yes, that. judicial elections. I don't think any other nation in the world, as far as I know, elects its judges in popular elections. And don't start now. <laughs> That's a bad way to go. I don't think I need to say more. We'll take, take some to the center. If I could ask you to run up, we've got a gentleman in a green shirt there and a, a, a woman behind him, two rows back. Um, thank you very much for your talk. Just two quick things. Um, <clears throat> how do you interpret and what is your reaction to uh, American uh, judicial decisions over the past 10 to 15 years with regards to anti-terrorism law and the Patriot Act and such? And second, um, there's a lot of debate in this country about how we treat our prisoners and what we do to people after they've been through the judiciary system. And I imagine it's a similar debate in the US. Um, so what's your take on rehabilitation versus incarceration? Your first question is, 
what do I think about the rehabilitation of prisoners? No? Yes? I'm not sure I know what the question is. You want to restate it as you understand it? What, I, think, I think the question is what should be the policy that drives our, our prisons? Is it about uh, rehabilitating or um, Well, to the extent that we have limited terms of punishment, and the person's going to be released back in society, we jolly well should care about rehabilitation because they're going to be out there. So of course it matters a lot that the person can return to society having learned something so that the person won't go back and commit another crime. It's all important. Do we do a good job of it in our prisons? Probably not. I don't think we have nearly enough uh, good programs around the United States to rehabilitate people. I don't know what nation does the best job, but uh, I think we ought to find out and we ought to do the best we can to rehabilitate people if there's any likelihood of release. If someone's given a life sentence with no possibility of parole, you might not be as concerned. But if somebody is serving for a term of years, I am concerned about what happens when they're released. And I think all of us are. And what the best programs are, I'm not sure. Do you have a nation you'd like to nominate as having the best program? <laughs> yeah. All right, new rule of the game. I've promised, by the way, we could start walking up the stairs because I've promised a gentleman in a bright green shirt there and a woman sitting two rows behind him the next two questions. New rule of the game, one question only. So, life's full of tough choices. Pick your best question. You had mentioned um, adding uh, government in, in different schools. Uh, what are your opinions on the Common Core Standards and Article 10 of the Constitution? What are you talking about? <laughs> um, a national curriculum that the government is talking about passing um, for what schools should, be, uh, should teach. And then uh, Article 10 of the Constitution specifically granting uh, only states the power of, um, of education or individuals. So for those who don't carry around a copy of the Constitution like, that, like Justice O'Connor. I'll read you Article 10 if it helps. <laughs> the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. It just means that if there's nothing specifically delegated, the states are left to decide whatever it is. is that seems fair enough. It, is, does it apply to some situation you have in mind? Teaching of civics, is that right? You're, the teaching of civics? And whether that falls to the states or the, uh, uh, we could impose I'd it. I'd say it isn't delegated, so um, it, they, we leave it to the states what to teach. Okay. Question behind. Uh, Justice O'Connor, you were on the court that rejected the Bush administration's claim that the president had the power to jail people accused of terrorist connections without access to lawyers or the outside world. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the Hamdi and Rumsfeld <coughs> decision and to what extent it was a victory for human rights in America. Well, okay, let's get the, you, you restate the question as you understand it now and we'll go with that. I think the, the, the question is um, terrorist rights in in hearings, what was the name of the case? Hamdi. 
Was it a victory for human rights in the U.S.? Well, I thought the court did about as well as it could. I don't know. Do you have some issue with it? Do you? <laughs> What's the point? I signed it. I think it was right. But, I mean, maybe you don't. You're welcome to make a statement. I think Ronald Dworkin was arguing that uh, the court had had said it was it's very unlawful to detain anybody without charge, but it seemed like perhaps the court had taken a sort of lesser standard and the procedural grounds that they imposed on the government meant that they could continue pretty much doing what they wanted. Well, I don't think Hamdi gave the government a completely free hand, and we haven't had enough years to conclude otherwise. I thought the court acted pretty responsibly in Hamdi, and I haven't seen anything in the meantime that makes me think we made some grievous error there. Maybe time will tell, but I thought we handled that pretty well. We'll see. <laughs> question on this, this side. Uh, we've got one question here in the, in the middle, and then we'll take a... Uh, no, sorry, just, just to the right there. Oops, sorry. Mm. Going I'm going first. You spoke a lot about uh, equal treatment, the principle of equal treatment, how important that was. And I wondered if you thought there was any scope for the expansion of discrimination law to cover the kinds of things which affect a lot of people's life chances in the world, like nepotism, like discrimination on the basis of class and wealth, even discrimination on the basis of how attractive you are, that kind of thing. I'm just asking you to kind of speculate a bit. Do you think it could well, grow? there are various areas in which the um, elected branches of government, those bodies that make the laws like Congress or the Parliament, are free to enact things that they think further the uh, proposal that we shouldn't have gender-based discrimination and therefore we should prohibit A, B, C, and D. And I think uh, both our nations uh, do things like that. They get into the business of passing various laws that they think are of help in preventing gender discrimination. And so I don't think that's going to stop. I just wondered if there was a particular area that you felt discrimination should be illegal, but it's not at the moment. Not, not gender and not um, uh, well, I don't, not I'm not a good judge of what is currently the biggest problem in the United States, and I certainly don't know what the biggest problem is in Great Britain. So I don't think I can comment meaningfully on that. Thank you. Uh, let's, let's take a question down here, if we can. Now, I think we have time for two more questions after this. Thank you uh, for opportunity to ask questions. I'm a um, student at Bellabis College, a uh, law student. So uh, my question is, uh, there is a modern trend for criminal law in the whole world. Uh, there are, there are, uh, for less dangerous crimes, we can see softer, shorter punishments. And for more, for more serious crimes, uh, the uh, punishments are getting harsher and harsher. So, uh, as for example, as for Russian Federation, as I'm a citizen of Russian Federation, we can see that uh, 2011 uh, criminal code amendments reduced the severity of punishment for medium crimes and increased for high and very high danger crimes. Mm -hmm. as, for, uh, as for the case of the UK, we can see that Kenneth Clark um, um, 
deal with it in such manner that he is creating um, uh, responsibility for administrative uh, administra administrative offenses. So what is the case of the U.S.? What is doing, how the uh, U.S. is in compliance with this um, moder modern trend? Well, I think what we have seen in the United States with regard to legislative um, enactments for punishment of criminal offenders is to greatly increase the punishment for drug offenses, <coughs> the use of the illegal drugs. And um, to restrict the discretion of judges uh, in the United States, state legislatures and the Congress have tended to get very specific on the amount of time that um, must be ordered to be served for a drug offense of different kinds and they've gotten very tough depending on what kind of drug it is and have given very little flexibility to the judges in imposing sentence. The result of that has been to increase the prison population in the United States hugely we have all kinds of thousands of prisoners in the United States, and a majority are there for sentences for drug offenses, drug use or possession or sale, okay? And now we're complaining about having too many people in prison. So what's the solution? It probably is to reduce the sentences a little bit for drug offenses. Now, whether legislative bodies are going to take that step, I don't know, but you, you can't have it both ways. You can't reduce the prison population if you don't address the lengthy sentences they've imposed for drug offenses. And that's been very typical of the U.S. I don't know how it is in Great Britain or other nations. I haven't really looked at it. I don't think many nations have sentences as long as those imposed in the U.S. I think ours are pretty uh, devastating in that regard. So it's a matter of some debate in the press yeah. right now here in the U.K. All right, two more questions. I got one stretching very hard here right in the middle, and, and then we'll take one from the back. Um, thank you. Firstly, um, I just want to uh, thank um, for the pleasure of hearing you speak today. Um, as the first woman uh, to hold one of the most powerful uh, positions in the United States, I was wondering, um, did you personally and professionally experience any difficulties on the basis of your gender in your position? Once I got on the U.S. Supreme Court? Is that uh, what yes. you're asking? Yes. <laughs> and, on the and, court? Yeah, well, um, on your way to the court and... Uh, on my way to the court, I certainly did. On the court, I don't think I did. I mean, when I got to the U.S. Supreme Court, there are only nine members, and the court was, they were short one member, and the court was dividing four to four on a lot of issues. They needed somebody, male or female. They needed a ninth vote. And uh, I provided it. And I didn't find discrimination of any kind on the U.S. Supreme Court. They were glad to have a potential vote on whatever side. <laughs> it was good. They were welcoming. 
On my way to the court, I had all kinds of trouble. My goodness, when I got out of law school, now it was in the middle of the last century, long time ago, I couldn't even get a job interview for a legal position. I had to ask a friend of mine to ask her father, who was in a law firm, if they couldn't give me an interview. And when I got an interview, all I could get was, we don't, we've never hired a woman lawyer, and we don't see the day when we will. That's how I ended up. And my first job, I was planning to get married. My husband was a year behind me, and we both liked to eat, and so one of us had to work, and that was me. <laughs> I really needed a job. And I heard, and I wanted to work as a lawyer. I liked law school. I thought, well, I'm ready. And I heard that the county attorney in San Mateo County, California, had once had a woman lawyer on his staff. So I wrote him and made an appointment to go see him, and he had my resume. Oh, Miss Day, you have a fine resume here. Yes, I did have a woman on my staff, and she did a good job. I'd be happy to have another one. But I get my money from the County Board of Supervisors, and they haven't given me money to hire another deputy. So I, what can I do? I don't have any money. Well, then he walked me around the office, and he said, as you can see, every office is full. I don't have empty space to put another deputy, so I'm sorry. But I wrote him back, and I said, look, I'll work for you for nothing, zero until such time as you get a little money to pay me. I, that's all right. And I said, I know you don't have an empty office, but I met your secretary, and there's room in her room for another desk if she doesn't object. That was my first job as a lawyer. No pay, and I put my desk in with the secretary. And I loved my job. I loved my work. I got my foot in the door. And I hadn't been there more than about four months when the county attorney was made the local judge. And we were so happy for him, but he became the judge and that opened up a little bit of money in an office. So it worked out in the long run for me. And some of you, when you're having trouble getting a job, currently, because the economy's so bad, you know, you may have to make a few adjustments yourselves, but don't be afraid to do it. Accommodate it. Get your foot in the door. That's what I had to do. Okay, last question. Last question. <laughs> Where should we go? Actually, I think, I think that's a, a great note to end the session. I see that okay. we, we, we've run over a little bit, and I, I see from the number of hands we could go on for a very long time. Um, we're glad that you learned to work for nothing in those days, yeah. because here you are telling, sharing with us and the pay the LCs for, for nothing. nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm back where I started. Okay. But we're glad that you did. Okay. okay. Thank you very, Bye. very much. Sir.